Hello you, my name is Lauren Layfield and this is your next podcast. The show that podcast fans everywhere have been waiting for. hard it is to find good shows to lose yourself in and it's even harder to think of podcasts to recommend to friends plus over the summer you might find you've got a bit more time to listen than usual you know with traveling and bank holidays and stuff i'm going on holiday just shortly to finland so i've got a couple of hours to kill so if you're wondering oh my god what do i listen to on the flight don't worry i am on the case you can just relax okay Every week, I will bring you the first episode of a brand new podcast, which I have tried and tested, ready for you to get stuck into. Plus, if you follow your next podcast, more great suggestions will appear in your favorite podcast app. You'll automatically create a fail-safe list of five-star shows to pick from, so no more scrolling. This week, the show I'm recommending is Three Doors Down, hosted by journalist and writer Julie Bindle. The story is an incredible one, and it's an incredibly sad one. It's about a seven-year-old girl called Nikki Allen, who was brutally murdered in 1992, and whose mother fought for 30 years to get justice, which she finally achieved in May this year. I needed to do myself because nobody's gone to go out there, Sharon, now and get justice for your ban. You have to go out there yourself and do it. The cop in charge was was briefing the press that Nikki was outside the boar's head begging for pennies for Halloween. That's what she was supposed to have been doing. That's where she was supposed to have been abducted from. It's not an easy listen in a lot of ways, but it feels important and kind of timely. Sharon Henderson, the mum, is an incredible woman and the journalism in this is outstanding as well. Episode one takes you back to the night that Nikki disappeared. Tortoise. David Boyd, stand up. It's a Tuesday afternoon in late May, in a packed courtroom at Newcastle Crown Court. For the murder of Nicky Allen, on the 7th of October of 1992, the sentence of the court is one of life imprisonment. You will serve a term of 29 The judge, Mrs Justice Lambert, is sentencing David Boyd, a known child sex offender, for the murder of seven-year-old Nicky Allen, nearly 31 years ago, in 1992. A further aggravating factor is the vicious and brutal nature of your attack, She sentences him to life in prison and rules that he must serve a minimum of 29 years. Boyd is now in his mid-50s. It seems unlikely he'll ever be freed. The jury had taken 90 minutes to reach a guilty verdict after a trial which lasted a month. Nonetheless, you are providing a statement in which you gave yourself a false alibi. I must, of course, There's normally tension on the press bench when the jury comes back, but not this time. As it filed in, the reporter from a local paper who had sketched out his copy on his phone typed guilty in a text to his newsroom and held his finger over the key, poised to send. When the verdict was read out, there was uproar in the public gallery. Cries of yes and you bastard. Nicky Allen's family punching the air shouting, thank you to the jury. 
Our commitment has always been to establish who was responsible and to bring them to justice. New forensic techniques has been key in this investigation in identifying David Boyd. And the residents of Sutherland have also played their part in ensuring justice for Nikki and her family. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank each and every resident who provided us with their DNA. Without their help, today's conviction would not have been possible. On the steps of the court, Deputy Chief Constable Lisa Thika, who led the investigation, paid tribute to Nikki's family and praised the commitment of her team in tracking down David Boyd. It looks like a victory for Thika and her team, and for policing in general. But there's a different version to this story. Started looking at Nikki's case when I knew things weren't right. George Heron was, he looked weak, he looked feeble, he looked pale, greasy hair, big glasses. He was kind of your stereotypical child murderer, if you like. When I started reading the article and I seen his face, I was like, oh my God, that's him that had grabbed me when I was, when I was 13. What's the point of the police force when we're doing all their jobs? Sharon Henderson, Nikki's mother, has been trying to find her daughter's murderer for 30 years. I needed to do myself because nobody's gone to come out there, Sharon, now and get justice for you, Ben. You have to go out there yourself and do it. And yet the basic facts of the case are remarkably straightforward. David Boyd lived in the same block of flats as Sharon and her daughters and three doors away from Nikki's grandparents the place from where she first went missing. David Boyd was known to the police. He had a conviction for breach of the peace in 1986, after approaching four girls, aged eight to 10, grabbing one and asking for a kiss. In the same year, he exposed himself three times to a woman. In 1987, he was again investigated for showing his genitals, this time to a 15-year-old girl. In both these last instances, the police recorded the incident, but took no further action. David Boyd is the kind of offender who should have been caught. So why wasn't he? Why did it take 26 years for the police to interview him as a suspect in Nicky's murder? What does Sharon's story tell us about Britain's police and the way they treat working class women? In particular, single mothers like Sharon. I'm Julie Bindle. From Tortoise, this is Three Doors Down, a murder, a mother, and a 30-year investigation. Episode one, Missing. I was visiting my mum and dad in Darlington in June 2006. I remember sitting in their backyard reading the local paper. The first thing that grabbed my attention on an inside page was a photograph of a woman kneeling by a child's grave. The headline read, Mum's bid to dig up daughter. A mother has threatened to dig up her daughter's body in a bid to bring her killer to justice. 
I read the name of that blonde-haired woman kneeling by the graveside, Sharon Henderson. I was immediately drawn to her story. I wanted to meet her and find out what had happened for her to be threatening to dig up her own daughter's body. A few weeks later, we had dinner in a Chinese restaurant. Her blonde hair is tied back off her face and there is a foreboding look in her dark blue eyes. Over special fried rice and sesame prawn toast, neither of which Sharon touched, and Diet Cokes, I got to know Sharon. Sharp and never missing a trick, she impressed me immediately. A woman who had clearly been underestimated and keenly aware of how and why she had been treated by those she named professionals. There's a steely determination to Sharon, which is apparent from when you first meet her. When you speak with her, she's the kind of person who doesn't fidget, who holds eye contact, and who tells you straight if she doesn't agree with you. Sharon told me about how she'd written in vain to the Queen, Prime Ministers, and members of the House of Lords, and anyone else she could think of that might help with Nikki's case. And she has one single focus, to get justice for Nikki. Sharon speaks to Nikki every day. Nikki was a happy, mischievous child, with a toothy grin and shoulder-length light brown hair. She tells me about the personal toll her daughter's death has on her, how she struggles on occasions with her mental health, with excessive drinking and prescribed drugs. But she is determined to get justice. On that evening in 2006, in the Chinese restaurant, we had no idea that it would be another 17 years before there was a conviction. We've been regularly in touch during the intervening years. My partner, Harriet Wistridge, has been Sharon's solicitor for that time too. Growing up in Sunderland in the tail end of the 1960s and 70s, Sharon didn't enjoy an easy life. I didn't have a mother growing up. I was brought up in care, uh, which I didn't mind from 3 to 14. That's when I went to live in the guards. I wasn't brought up with a family. I came straight from care. You, you didn't know your future, that you're going to be a single parent. But we, we didn't have a, a sad life. Where what happy life. Sharon has said to me repeatedly, that in all of the coverage of the death of her daughter, people often forget that before all this, they were a family. We're a happy little family. I'm definitely not a perfect mother. Um, I, I tried my best. I wasn't taught how to be a mother. I know right from wrong. I visit Sharon at her home, a small, neat terraced house in Roker, not far from the sea. I once recall her rolling a cigarette and her telling me about finding out that Lisa Theka, the officer in charge of the investigation, had taken part in the TV programme, Catch a Killer in an Hour. The second the call comes in, the clock starts ticking. The police have an hour to catch a killer. Which made her roar with laughter. Catch a killer in an hour? She started shaking her head and said, she can't even bloody catch a killer in 30 years. Another time she told me that somebody had come along to the victim's rights group that she was involved in. 
He'd witnessed a tragedy taking place, involving people he didn't know. Sharon paused and said, I suppose some people are so bored they pretend they're victims themselves to come and listen to all the stories and get a free cup of tea and a biscuit. In these moments, I saw the woman who was there before this tragedy happened. Dark, witty, but made vulnerable by events that she had no control over. Sunderland, 1992, is where this story takes place. It's a forgotten corner of Britain, along with the rest of the North East, an area that has never recovered from the recession under the Thatcher government, when the mining and shipbuilding industries disappeared. We were just a workforce. If you think about it, go back, you know, a couple hundred years, the North East was just a workforce. Get in the pits, get on the mines and dig the coal and then build the ships and everything was, was heavy work. This is Jeff Moon. For decades, he's run the Welcome Tavern, a pub in the heart of the once thriving docks. Overlooking the docks is a working class housing estate called the Garths. Notorious bricked silhouettes in the east end of the city. Notorious because there's something of a no-go area for the police. Locals, in particular the men, prefer dealing with neighbour disputes and petty crime themselves. The Garth Flats were four floors high and in three blocks that all faced onto a square centre. The flats had verandas and parents would stand outside smoking and chatting to one another while keeping an eye on their children playing in the communal area below. Massive, I mean, community-like spirit within them, you know, by the, the, the very structure, the very shape of them. Everybody, you know, you were kind of looking at, at everybody's house. Many of Jeff's regulars lived on the Garth estate. There was a lot of families. So the Garth was always filled with kids. When I was a kid, like my, my, my one nana lived on one side, the other grandmother lived on the other side, and me great aunts all lived next down, and then my other aunts lived further along. My mum's sister lived next door to her mum. So it was, you could go to house to house all, as a kid, it was great. In one of the ground floor flats lived Nikki, her three sisters, and their mum, Sharon. It's tea time on a school night. Sharon and Nikki go to see Sharon's father, who lives two floors above them. But Nikki is anxious to go home. You knew that she was wanting to go back to play with her sisters, basically. She was bored at your dad's. Mm -hmm. Well, she didn't like the he had the hoover on, she didn't like the hoover. Nikki is scared of the sound of the vacuum cleaner. So she asks her mum if she can go home before her and see her sisters. Sharon watches her walk the 150 yards across the pathway and down the stairs before she disappears from sight on the ground floor where she would turn along the corridor and into her own flat. But she never arrives. Sharon's memory of the next few hours is hazy. I didn't have a clue what was happening, really didn't. Everything was just, it's really hard to explain. Sharon is frantic. She's going door to door asking each flat if they've seen Nicky. Her neighbours join in. 
Now, there was people out then that was lively, people out looking then. It was already a dark autumn evening, but as the search continues, it's getting late. Evan, quarter past 11. So you'd call time? Oh, yeah, I was, I was, we were upstairs and we just looked out and it was like, oh, dear me. And like I say, you could see people out with torches and stuff like that. And just says, oh, the band's missing. And I just says, typically, I hope the band's all right and whatever, yeah. I mean, it was like before 12 when they when I'd like come back into where you got after and then you, you, you're like really panicking and then the police, as I said, you cannot move from your door, Sharon. The block of flats opposite Sharon was known as Burley Garth. Most of our friends was in Burley Garth, that was in the same class. So she might have been there. Nikki and her school friends would play outside between Weir Garth, where she lived, and the facing block of flats. Well, that, that's what I thought she was. And, you know, that is, you've got to give people time for, like, checking the bedrooms, checking other beds and that. Um, and I had to stand at people's doors waiting for things like that. People are out in slippers with torches. Word spreads. That's one thing. Having a tight community, news travels fast. We were upstairs and we just looked out and was like, oh, dear me. You could see people out with torches and stuff like that. And just says, oh, the band's missing. And, and because it was night, it's like, you know. It happened that quick. People just, like, come from nowhere. The time goes on and Nikki still hasn't been found. Sharon is becoming hysterical with worry. This was about two o'clock when I'm thinking this. Somebody's took her from the garth, from the stairs or the arch, thinking it's somebody in a car by then. Because everybody I knew... All our friends have been all their houses. And then people getting in touch with other people that bands went to the school but didn't live in the gods, lived in the like areas. And then people start to travel out. Um, and you, you, then the helicopter comes out and it just goes, I could hear the helicopter on it. I'm sure there was um, a news one. There was one helicopter um, I was driving, was around the bend, and that's what they, they got the doctor because I was screaming and shouting because uh, I wanted to get out there to look for Nicky. And there was just this same voice on on uh, as if it was a recomber, and I was a, a copper on a mic, just shouting, Nick, you're not going to get wrong, your mum's waiting for you, your mum's waiting for you, at your granddaughter's. The same things over and over again, because I thought she might have been frightened. Now, if she'd been outside the goth and come back and seen all this, like, stuff going on in that, and I heard another helicopter and somebody said that was a... Um, I didn't have to use them, them dears or press. It was half past nine at night when Nikki's mother told her to head down a flight of stairs back home from her grandparents' flat. And you were obviously sick with worry. You'd been given a sedative, presumably, when the doctor came round to keep you calm while the search went on. It was frightening, but I'm like a zombie. You're just sitting there, like, and just staring. Um, and that's all I remember, the helicopter, all the time. And then the next morning, I remember standing at the sink, and it just seemed like, if I had to, like, draw a picture of it, it's like, loads of ants, and that was the people in the garth, me looking down. Just, there was no space, they were just all over the place, people. And then John came in with the court, now, how did the police not spot the court? 
I've been tucked to that place where the coat was. Is this Nikki's coat that she came? Coat and shoes. Joan found Nikki's coat and shoes. Well, a a lad did, and they picked it up, and Joan carried it to the door. And when I look back, how did the police miss that? I cannot understand. This was just the beginning of the police's mishandling of the case. Sharon's next memory is in a hospital ward. I got to late to hospital then. It was awful lame. And you were taken away in an ambulance because you realised something had gone horribly wrong. Do you remember what happened next? I went in, the police wanted to speak to um, my stepmom and my dad. I was still like in like a dear's thing. The poor is in a little room. I was just sat there like a zombie on the bed. So the phone went and of all the people that had to tell me some my bam was dead was my real mum. Fina is Sharon's birth mother. But Sharon did not see her as a mother figure. The two had never been close. But it's her birth mother who gives Sharon the news that her own daughter, Nikki, has been murdered. I've just seen all these crowds of people outside the building. And I knew straight I went, is that where the air found Nikki? And David went, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I just, I shit, and that, I had to stop the car, and I was trying to go out, and I kicked the doors and that. And then the police came, and it was them that wanted to not break the news to us. But Vina had already told Vina, you. Because everybody said the fireman carrying it, yeah, the back covered up. Pause. Yeah. The news is overwhelming. Nikki's tiny body had been found in the derelict old exchange building close to the Weirgarth flats where she disappeared from the previous night. After hundreds had searched all night, Nikki's red shoes and purple coat were recovered outside the old exchange. A short time later, a young teenager ran hysterically from the building after going in and finding Nikki's body. Nikki was hit, hurt and bundled through a boarded up back window, her head beaten with a brick, stabbed more than 30 times and dragged dead down into the far corner of the basements and left. Well, until late this afternoon, they were continuing their search in and around the old exchange buildings. They're looking for what they've described as the blunt instrument that they believe was used to carry out this murder. The moment Nikki's body was found, Sharon's life shattered. Basically, my word fucked up from the final body. Once things started to settle down and, and the behaviour of certain individuals and stuff like that, and people soon backed away. But the one thing that didn't falter was the very fact that there was a child that was murdered. That, if anything, kept it just about, you know, sort of floating. Um, what do you mean, kept what about floating? The, 
the support, if you like. Right. What Jeff is speaking about here is just the start of what began to unravel with Nikki's case. Some people turned against Sharon when rumours began to spread about where she was on the night of the murder. People, years ago, everybody believed the media, everybody believed the police. And what did they believe, though? Rumours that I was out in a pub or Nicky was penny for the guy in or I was up the team drinking and and poor me was standing in the middle of the garth in my dressing gown and jammers and I remained shaking for me Ben. I'm so glad there was all them witnesses I'd seen us when I was gone door to door looking for Nicky. I didn't give a shit about rumours but I believe more people would have come forward if the police had worked properly on the case instead of fucking a dope. Some people might have come forward by now. The rumours that Sharon is speaking about are not just local hearsay. There were lies. And they were spread by the very people who should have been investigating the case. I want to know why it took the police 30 years to find the man who killed Nicky. In the next episode, we'll hear how the 24 hours after Nicky went missing were crucial in the investigation. The cop in charge was, was briefing the press that Nicky was outside the boar's head begging for pennies for Halloween. That's what she was supposed to have been doing. That's where she was supposed to have been abducted from. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Three Doors Down will be released every Tuesday. You can get early access to this and other Tortoise series and ad-free listening by subscribing to Tortoise Plus on Apple Podcasts. Or for the best tortoise listening experience, curated by our journalists, download the Tortoise app. And please leave ratings and reviews. It really helps. This series was reported by me, Julie Bindle. It was written by me and Joanna Humphreys. The producer was Joanna Humphreys. The narrative editor was Gary Marshall. The sound design and original theme is by Tom Kinsella. The executive producer was Jasper Corbett. Tortoise. To make sure you don't miss the rest of this series, which I know you won't want to, uh, search for Three Doors Down on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you find your podcasts. Once you've tapped follow for that show, don't forget to do the same for this show too, so you can find your next podcast. All my recommendations for the whole series will also be on Podcast Rex at www.podcastrex.com. That is www.podcastrex.com. 